today on Ag News Daily. The customer base changed, but the volume um, really managed to stay just slightly lower than normal, which was a great, great blessing uh, for us. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Friday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by Ashton Carr. Ashton, how's it going today? It's going pretty well, Delaney. I was just letting you know that I did travel to Norman, Oklahoma earlier today to visit one of my friends that goes to OU. And I saw some cotton fields on the way in, actually, after I crossed the Oklahoma border, which took me by a little bit of a surprise. Yeah, that's pretty neat to see. It certainly is. I didn't even realize that Oklahoma, I guess they don't do a whole lot of cotton, but still I was surprised to see that there was cotton Mm -hmm. in the fields. Uh, Wasn't a whole lot of bulbs that I saw. So I think they're going through harvest right now um, and just wrapping stuff up like we are here in the Texas panhandle. It's going to be interesting to see numbers that come out on Monday for crop progress report. I'm sure we're going to see pretty much near completion, if not done. Yes, I am hoping that we are nearing completion as we are going to see some colder temperatures start dropping as we enter the holiday season. But other than that, Delaney, one thing that I was looking out on today was the Chinese city of Wuhan. Earlier today, they said that they had detected coronavirus on the packaging of a batch of Brazilian beef. Now, yesterday, Mm -hmm. I reported that there was some in China. I didn't report on which city. I don't think that I can remember off the top of my head where it was reported. Um, But that was Argentine beef. And today it is Brazilian beef. The Wuhan Municipal Health Commission said in a statement on its website that it had found three positive samples on the outer packaging of frozen boneless beef from Brazil. And this is the part that I found pretty interesting was that the beef had entered uh, the port on August 7th, and it reached Wuhan on August 17th, where it remained in a cold storage facility until here recently. So from what we know from coronavirus, if it stays on, you know, for 14 days or however many days, I am just surprised to see that they are seeing these samples test positive when it arrived in Wuhan on August 17th. Yeah, I saw that story as well, Ashton. And, uh, did they give it any any indication as to whether or not they were going to do anything about the uh, COVID that was found on it? COVID traces, I should say. Um, I It doesn't say on whether or not it's going to do anything about, you know, putting a ban on Brazilian beef, at least not from what I have seen. But I do know that, you know, they are taking more measures to test and mitigate the spread of COVID-19, especially in food packaging facilities. But I feel like that's nothing new because I I feel like it's just kind of repetition at this point that they are ramping up testing because we've seen articles state that they're ramping up testing for quite some time now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they absolutely are. You're right on the news there, Ashton. But I want to switch checks just a little bit here. Uh, still talking about U.S. protein, but we saw U.S. federally inspected pork production fall to 583 million pounds for the week ending November 14th, down from their 586 number in the previous week. Hog slaughter was down about 0.9%, and cattle slaughter was actually up for the same period, about 1.1%. We didn't really get any indication as to why uh, beef and 
beef was up and pork was down, but I'm sure it's largely COVID related. It probably is, Delaney, with the so much up and down with COVID-19 and consumer demand. I feel like anything can happen at this point. And one thing that's actually happening right now is more trust in farmers here in the U.S. A new poll by American Farm Bureau shows that farmers are gaining trust in the eyes of most Americans, in fact. The survey of more than 2,000 adults in the U.S. found that 88% trust farmers, which was an increase of 4% from the Bureau's June poll. President Zippy Duval says Americans have a high level of trust in farmers and understands that they are committed to protecting the soil, water, and air. And I found this very interesting because I feel like before the pandemic, this might not have been something to be reported on just because folks were going more organic and, you know, no antibiotics ever, that kind of stuff. And so I feel like there was less trust in farmers that use antibiotics or anything like that. So I thought this was a very interesting poll. Well, I've got another poll for you, Ash, and also done by the American Farm Bureau Federation looking at sustainability in the farming industry. They said 84% of folks said it was either important or somewhat important that farmers be involved in environmental sustainability with things like farming practices that protect natural resources, also things like promoting soil health, conserving water, enhancing wildlife, etc. And about more than half respond half of the respondents rated that farmers' environmental practices are either excellent or good. We saw about 60% of folks say that they believe farmers have uh, consumers' best interest at heart as well as the environment's best interest at heart. So maybe folks are starting to be a little more understanding about what farmers do and how we're actually helping the environment not hurting. You know, Delaney, I wonder if there is such an increase in a concern for conservation and sustainability just because we're seeing younger farmers start taking the lead on operations. Yeah, that could absolutely be it too, Ashton. You know, a new generation steps in. Maybe they're doing things a little bit differently than uh, dad or grandpa did. So that could absolutely be part of it. Well, Delaney, I just have one other news story to share on this Friday. The U.S. Supreme Court has granted EPA an extension to respond to a challenge by an oil refiner to the 10th Circuit Court EPA's handling of small refinery waivers in January. The EPA reportedly cited the pandemic when asking for more time. The Supreme Court has given the agency until mid-December to respond. The Renewable Fuels Association and other biofuels groups say that the EPA's request for a delay creates uncertainty for biofuels producers and could put off EPA's renewable fuels volume rules for 2021. So I thought this was interesting as we are seeing the transition between the or. You know, I still don't know how to really word this on whether or not we're going to see the transition from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. But if that is what we're seeing, I think this is definitely something interesting, especially with the oil refinery waivers that we have been watching on how that's going to be handled under a new administration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point, Ash. And I, I guess we, I don't really know how the Biden administration will handle it. And to be honest, I didn't pay that much attention to it, just because if I'm being honest, I really thought President Trump was going to be reelected. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of folks thought, especially in rural America. But from my understanding on Biden's stance on the oil industry, you know, 
I just don't know how this will go for the oil industry or these waivers, but definitely something to look out for as we are nearing that transition. Yeah, absolutely. That'll be something we keep an eye on and might be good to have another political type of person on to talk about really, you know, now that we do think Biden will be our next president-elect, what those things will be that he is going to change for us. But Ash, and I tell you what, I've got a few more pieces of news before we talk markets for today. Uh, and these are all largely market-related news items. But this one was interesting. Saw this cross the wire today. But U.S. shippers reported a net sale, just a small one of 19, just under 20,000 tons of corn headed to France for the week ending November 5th. This is the first order heading to France since March of 2019, even though the European Union is the world's top importer of corn. Not really any indication as to why they imported U.S. corn. But we also saw, if you're looking here at a big picture of things, corn sales uh, fell nine fell to 978,000 tons versus uh, down basically 3,100 tons from the previous week. Uh, soybean exports also fell just slightly this week, but still pretty good numbers overall. Well, Delaney, I am all out of news on the day. What do you say we head over to the markets? Yeah, I think we should, Ashton, because we saw things really kind of shape up and square their positions up, funds squaring up their positions here before the weekend. And we saw soybean futures and corn futures gained really for the second week in a row, if you're looking at it on a week by week basis. Again, with robust signals to the demand, even though we did see export numbers uh, down just slightly this week, but really pretty friendly overall. Starting off here in the December corn contract, Ashton down, excuse me, up two and three quarters cent to close at four ten and a half. The March up a penny and a quarter to close at four nineteen and a half. Soybeans up as well as the November contract added four and a half cents to close at eleven forty one and a half. The January up two and a half to close at eleven forty eight. Chicago wheat also pulled higher on the day as the December contract added five and a quarter cent to close at five ninety three and a half. The March up four and three quarters to close at six zero two even. Livestock today pulled back as the December live cattle contract shed 205 to close at 109.92. The February down 257 to close at 112.22 and a half. In the feeder cattle pits, the November contract shedding 260 to close at 137.47. The January down 285 to close at 137.87 and a half. In lean hogs, weakness today as the December contract shed 90 cents to close at 64.90. The February down 215 to close at 64.57 and a half. And rounding out our markets with the class three dairy milk futures. November shedding 24 cents to close at 23.13. December down three quarters to close at 17. 71. Without further ado, Ashton, uh, tell us who we're talking to for today's Friday interview. Today, we are talking to Chris Hughes of Diamond H. Quail. For today's Friday conversation, we are talking to Chris Hughes, who is the founder of Diamond H. Ranch. Chris, thank you so much for coming on today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So, Chris, why don't you go ahead and tell us what Diamond H Ranch is, because there are so many types of ranches here in the U.S. and abroad, but uh, yours is a little bit special because you're not ranching cattle. <laughs> right. So it's, it's a little bit different. Uh, we are actually 
a quail farm. Uh, so we're not we're not riding around on horses with real tiny lassos uh, herding up the quail. Uh, it it's actually a uh, all in one site quail farm hatchery and processing facility. So uh, we raise a species of quail called Caternix quail that uh, is specifically for the uh, food and meat industry. Um, those animals are hatched on site, uh, they're grown on site, and then we have a government inspected processing plant there on the ranch as well, uh, where we, we uh, process the quail, package it, and have it shipped out to restaurants across the country. Well, I, Chris, I've got to admit, I wish you, I wish you were riding around lassoing little quail. I think that'd be a <laughs> hilarious video to see. But tell us a little bit about the origination story of Diamond H Ranch. Is this something that you started yourself or family, and why quail? So the the origination story actually starts with a a different company, Broken Arrow Ranch, um, that that I also own. Uh, and we were a wild game meat company. So it was, it was a family business started by my father. I'm second generation. And what we do at Broken Arrow Ranch is go to ranches around Texas and harvest uh, deer and antelope using a mobile slaughter facility uh, and sell that meat to restaurants across the country. Um, in the kind of mid-90s, uh, about 40 miles from where, where Broken Arrow Ranch is located, another gentleman, uh, Tom Harrington, started Diamond H Ranch uh, with, with his family. And he ran that operation for about 15 years, and we were aware of each other because we shared a lot of the same rest restaurant menus. We sold to a lot of the same, same customers. And then eventually Mr. Harrington decided to retire and he retired and closed down the, the quail farm. And at that time I found out about it and approached him and, and, and bought the farm and facilities and got it back up and running again in 2010. And it's kind of been operating as a, a sister company between Broken Arrow Ranch and Diamond H Ranch uh, since then. So Chris, I have a quick question for you here. And it's being, how, how does the quail that you guys are raising different, how are they different from wild quail? Because my family has a ranch up in central, north central Texas, and I come across wild quail on the ranch all the time when we're out there hunting deer. So how, how is it different than those that are raised in the wild? Well, the first difference is that these are a, the Caternix quail are a non-native species. So it's not like uh, a bobwhite or a gambrel quail or some of the other quail that you might see uh, running around uh, on, the, on the plains. Uh, this is a species that was domesticated a thousand years ago over in Asia for meat and uh, egg. And then those quail eventually made it over here to the United States uh, for the main reason that they grow up in about a third of the time as a bobwhite or other native species. So a native bobwhite matures in about 18 weeks. Uh, a Caternix is fully mature in uh, six weeks. 
So the grow time to, to full maturity is about a third less, which of course equals a third of the feed cost and a third of the, the turnaround time on your, on your production cycle. Um, another big difference is that we raise uh, what's called white Caternix quail or Texas A&M Caternix quail. And, uh, you know, they would not make, or they would be a very easy hunting bird since they're stark white compared to the camouflage uh, brown and spotted that you see with the bob white. And Chris, you mentioned the feed time there. So let's talk a little bit more about the feeding and the lifespan of these quail. What are you feeding them? How long does it take for them to go to market, so to speak? And uh, from there, what happens to the quail? Who are you re retailing them to? Mm -hmm. So the, the quail is a, just a proprietary um, feed blend, but it's, you know, it's a fairly traditional blend of, of corn and, and soy and, and wheat middlings. Um, we, we do get some calls on occasion from people concerned that uh, we're feeding our birds grain, uh, but I, I also have to remind those customers that that's what God designed birds to eat, <laughs> was actually to eat grain. Um, but we work with one of the local, uh, uh, local feed mills here to, to keep us provided with that. Uh, mentioned earlier that the uh, turnaround time, the, the full growth to maturity is about six weeks. Uh, we actually raise our birds to seven weeks, and we feel that that extra uh, week of aging uh, produces the slightly larger bird uh, and a bird that has a little bit more uh, depth of flavor uh, to the meat. And we seem to find that the uh, that our customers agree. Um, once they're processed and packaged, um, we sell them to restaurants all across the country, everywhere from uh, high-end Michelin restaurants in, in New York to restaurants in California and everywhere in between. So, Chris, I have a two-part question here. The first being, did you see any kind of influx of demand from your customers when the COVID-19 pandemic hit? And my second question is, are you anticipating an even larger influx as we are nearing the holiday season and there's going to be smaller gatherings, therefore not really a need for a larger traditional holiday dinner. COVID had an interesting impact on us in, in a couple of ways. Uh, the, the first one was uh, our primary market was restaurants. So that was probably about 80% of our market. And of course, when all the restaurants in the country shut down, uh, it's, it's certainly concerning. But through Broken Arrow Ranch, we already had a, uh, a, a website presence and a website outlet for that product. And so as soon as the restaurant shut down, we saw a spike uh, or a growth in, in internet sales and retail sales. Um, that really kind of helped close that gap. So the customer base changed, but the volume um, really managed to stay just slightly lower than normal, which was a great, great blessing uh, for us. Uh, the other interesting uh, sales bit we saw with COVID was a huge interest in people coming to pick up chicks and eggs. I think everybody was stuck at home and looking for hobbies to do for themselves or with their kids. And so we, we certainly had a lot of people coming by to uh, just hobbyists that were that were picking up some some live bird options for their home. Uh, for Thanksgiving, we, we always see a spike 
uh, in the holidays and certainly around Thanksgiving. I, I think a lot of people really enjoy uh, using quail as an alternative to, to turkey. It gives a nice individual serving as opposed to a gigantic uh, carving. And you can take one of these birds and, and put your stuffing in it and roast it up and it, it makes for a pretty fine meal. That sounds pretty good. I yeah. have never had quail myself, but uh, I think I'd definitely be willing to try it based off of your delicious description. <laughs> Chris, before I let you go, if folks have questions about Diamond H Ranch, uh, do you have a website or social media or anything that folks can connect with you on? Sure. Best, the best way to find us uh, is we've got a website, diamondhquail.com. Uh, but And then also through our sister company, BrokenArrowRanch.com, uh, which is where you'll get led for any of your online orders. Fantastic. Well, Chris, thanks again for joining us today to chat quail. This has been really interesting stuff. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Delaney. And thank you, Ashton. I appreciate y'all uh, letting me on. Thanks again there to Chris from Diamond H Quail for having a conversation with us today. And I'm really curious as we enter the Thanksgiving season, of course, we've talked about this quite a few times here on the podcast on whether or not we're going to see an increase in, you know, small poultry such as quail being used rather than large turkeys as families aren't going to be gathering as largely. Absolutely. And great, great find for today's Friday episode, Ashton. But we're always having great finds, great interviews and conversations with folks across the ag industry here on the Ag News Daily podcast. You can check us out, folks, at Ag News Daily on the website, or you can always check us out on social media at Ag News Daily on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Ashton, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.